Hi everyone, quick announcement from me straight up this week. I want to let you know that I will be at Town Hall House in Sydney for the City of Sydney Council, speaking on Tuesday the 23rd of July for Council's Smart Green Apartments program. It's an evening all about bylaws. You might have heard me speak about bylaws before. It is certainly a hot, hot topic. I'll be sharing how you can use the power of bylaws to improve your community. And I've got a few updates about harsh, unconscionable or oppressive bylaws under our New South Wales legislation. We've had a few cases come out of our tribunal, which I'd really like to talk through with you. This is a free event put on by City of Sydney Council. Spaces are limited. You want to head over to yourstrataproperty.com.au forward slash live. We've got about 90 minutes set aside for the night. Lots of time for Q&A, as you know I like to do. Come along, bring your burning strata question. I would love to see you, love to meet you in person. Tuesday, the 23rd of July. We're kicking things off at around 6pm and just make sure you are registered. Yourstrataproperty.com.au forward slash live will take you over to that registration page. Looking forward to it. Jumping in now to this week's episode with the lovely Rena Van Oust. Enjoy. Welcome to Your Strata Property, the podcast for property owners looking for reliable, accurate and bite-sized information from an experienced and authoritative source. To access previous episodes and useful strata tips, go to www.yourstrataproperty.com.au. Hello and welcome. I'm Amanda Farmer and I have with me today Rena Van Oust from Strata Central. Hi, Rena. Hi, Amanda. How are you? I'm doing well. I am enjoying life. Strata is going swimmingly. You know, all of those things that you hear me say often. (laughs) It's fantastic to hear. How are you? Yeah, just been busy, which is not unusual for this time of the year, actually. Um, A lot of junior ends coming up, so... Yeah, busy, busy, head down. (laughs) Well, let's jump straight in. What has been challenging you this week? Well, three or four weeks ago, we sent an AGM agenda out and um, we had shared the agenda with the committee. There were some motions that were put forward by owners. You know, we asked them for some explanatory notes and helped them with the drafting of those, submitted the budget, et cetera. And then two days before the AGM, we get an email from the treasurer saying that, can you add these motions under restricted matters and they included like you know making lot four you know repair damage to the driveway that happened like three years ago and there was about half a dozen different motions and um, I just had to go back and say well no the restricted matters which is schedule one of the act which deals with meetings of the Yarns Corporation, so it's basically general meetings under section nine additional matters to be included in the notice of AGM and part I says a form of motion to decide if any matter or type of matter is to be determined by the owners corporation in a general meeting. So that just means that where the strata committee has authority to deal with the matter pursuant to the act, that that authority is taken away and brought back to a general meeting for consideration by all owners. Mm. And anyway, I said to him, no, that's not the case. And then he started back and forth and, you know, eventually he accepted it. But um, 
It's funny, man, in all the years that I've been practicing strata, and this motion has been, I think, around for some time now as part of the AGM agenda, it's just very difficult to deal with people that don't really understand. It's not about sort of, you know, if you'd asked me, oh, you know, what does this mean? Can I include these sections or these types of motions in that part of the, the agenda, which had already been issued, mind you, this is like two days before the meeting. Hmm. I would have explained this is what it means. And and we have explanatory note on the AGM agenda, which does describe what that motion means. But um, it's just one of those very unusual and frustrating events that can happen when people like understanding of the act, which is fine. I mean, that's obviously why you go to an expert. I mean, everyone's got their own expertise in life. Um, but it's more about people's attitude when they don't understand a matter. And then rather than accepting, you know, like, that's okay, I'm sorry, I didn't understand what it meant. But then coming back and forth, emails, accusatory, you mm. know, maybe I should use that defamation case that we talked about in our last. <laughs> Perhaps maybe I can use that. <laughs> so, I, mean, I know this person has an asset, so it's not as if there's <laughs> any problems there. But, yeah, so I just thought I'd share that with our, our listeners. And, and I think this applies, I think, for many strata managers where we have had people that don't understand parts of the legislation. But I think also for lot owners, if you're not sure about something, it's perhaps it's best to ask rather than make statements and then argue the point when I'm not saying strata managers always get it right and none of us do. We always are learning. But I think it's important to have a very good harmonious relationship and be more mindful of, of how you ask a question. And that also probably applies to strata managing agents also when you want to sort of write to your owners or committees to think about how you write to people and, and the tone. And if you don't really know something 100%, always say, I'll come back to you or I need to check that and come back to you rather than, you know, making sort of statements and then finding out that they're definitely on the wrong path or mm. definitely interpreted the intention or what the act is actually saying. See, I wonder if they would communicate with their dentist, mm. accountant, or a plumber, electrician, mm. in those call it, know it all terms. But for whatever reason, people sometimes feel that they can communicate with their strata managers that way. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, that's right. I think um, a lot of people don't really have much respect for strata managers in general. And I don't mean that in a, in a sort of derogatory way. I just mean that they think that they don't really know what they're talking about. And to also give some clarity for owners, I mean, I must admit that some managers really don't know what they're talking about either. So, and again, it goes both ways. So I think we all have to learn to be respectful. And also, as you said, Amanda, how would, you know, to approach something in a way that's not confrontational or accusatory, but to basically try and gain an understanding of the legislation before you, you know, start making statements and saying that this is wrong and, you know, this is not what the law was saying, even though the same motion was on last year's agenda as well. Yeah. And there's your skill as a strata manager, Rena, that you know inside and out what the statutory motions are, so the motions yeah. that must be included on every notice of annual general meeting, what they mean, so that when you do get these questions, uh, demands, accusatory yeah, or demands otherwise, more, rather than a question. Yeah, you're able to answer them quickly and accurately. Yeah, but I think, Amanda, just to summarise, I think every strata manager knows all the motions for an AGM. So that, if anything, that's something that we know we do as managers, you know, every year for many buildings. So it's one of those things that strata managers do have generally a lot of experience with. So, yep. Good. Excellent to refresh on that one. Thank you, Rena. My challenge for this week relates to the election of the strata committee. 
And uh, I, it's just a quick one, but I wanted to raise it because I was contacted by an owner who shared with me a situation where their strata manager had told them that the strata manager must chair the meeting with their delegated authority as chair because all committee members vacate their positions at the beginning of the AGM and therefore there is otherwise no chair or any other committee members for that matter. And hopefully some strata managers who are listening to me say this are jumping up and down saying, no, that is not correct. The committee does not vacate their positions at the beginning of the annual general meeting. They vacate their positions at the end. And that is very clear in our legislation in section 35, subsection D. But I was quite shocked to hear that something which to me, you let me know what you think, Rena, is fairly stock standard, basic. This strata manager had incorrectly advised their client and was chairing meetings that they did not need to chair. I actually have egg on my face, Amanda, because I just said in my challenge just about a few minutes ago that an AGM is that most managers do have experience in and it's just something <laughs> you do all the time. So I think I've got to take some of that back now after what you've just mentioned. But this was a shock to me. Is that a shock yeah. to you that a manager wouldn't know that? Oh, definitely. Well, I think the whole committee election process is a real area, I think, where a lot of managers don't really understand how it works. I hate to say that this is the only probably the main part of the AGM agenda that I think some managers struggle with. The other thing I think Amanda to think about also, and I'm sure you've had experience of this, is the whole committee election process where people decide the number before they actually decide who the nominees are. So many managers actually do that in reverse. So that's another common mistake that managers make in relation to the election of the strata committee. But that I must say that your experience of your owner is a first for me. I've never actually heard anyone do that before. So there's always something new. Yeah, and I do. I mean, this owner was approaching me at a time where there was a bit of conflict going on. So it wouldn't surprise me if maybe the strata manager was being a bit creative there to avoid a certain person being able to chair the Mm. meeting and saying, no, 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 I have to chair it because, uh, oh, bright idea, you've actually vacated your position at the beginning of the meeting. Ah. But it was, yeah, one of those little pieces of information that takes us 30 seconds to deliver to an owner that just empowered her to be able to go back to that manager and say no. Um, And I don't think she was the chair. It was somebody else who she wanted the chair to actually be chairing the meeting, not the strata manager. And she was able to go back, point to section 35D and say, uh, you're wrong, strata manager. And uh, Mr. Smith from lot three, the chair can actually and should actually chair this meeting. Yeah, exactly. Yep. And I wonder what happened with any proxies, Amanda, that may have been assigned to the chair as well. That's the thing, yes. The chair can be a very powerful position, can't it, when proxies are being directed that way. Mm. Okay, over to your win for this week, Rena. This was a um, pretty good one, I think, for us this week, Amanda. We had a general meeting where two owners had just by chance submitted um, renovations for bathrooms and we obviously advised them that they needed to have a bylaw drafted for this because of the waterproofing factor with the bathroom renovation. And um, we had them a number of lawyers to get proposals from. They happened to go with the cheapest lawyer, who is a strata lawyer, and then when the the bylaw came back, we were a bit surprised at the lack of clauses relating to the indemnification for the owners corporation in relation to any damage to common property as a result of the renovation. But unfortunately, I mean, it's obviously not our job to advise unless the committee had asked us about the bylaws and what we thought. I mean, not that I would give advice per se in terms of anything that's formal, but I could at least advise them that other bylaws that we have 
usually have more identification clauses than what's been presented. And the other issue was because we also recommended the lawyer, it was a bit of an issue for us too to say, oh my God, what rubbish is this? I didn't say rubbish, but um, in one case, it didn't even refer to the plans. And I said to them, well, you need to basically annex the plan. I said, because I said, there's no way the owner's going to approve it if you don't have a reference to the plans. And the lawyer said to me, oh, but why are you doing that? I said, because I said, you know, trust me, I know how the owners are. And if you don't, the more detail you give about the renovation, the more chance there will be of passing it. Yep. I didn't want to refer to the identification issues anyway. So um, that wasn't really my place. It was more to do with just making sure that, that the plans reflected the work. And as we had expected um, when we went to the meeting that, you know, the, the owners were not happy with the clauses and it was lucky that there was an owner there who's um, a lawyer as well and we had some clauses from other bylaws that were drafted that we were able to help those owners with their consent because obviously they were at the meeting mm. uh, now those a few amendment clauses to be added mm-hmm. so that they could actually have their bylaws passed and they could actually start doing their bathroom renovations which as you said Amanda before people think they could get it done straight away and it's like no mm. secretary's got to call the meeting or the committee has to call the secretaries away and the whole thing it's of getting process. the you know it's just long-winded but um but yeah. at the end of the day you realize when it comes to bathrooms especially so many things can go wrong with water penetration inadequate waterproofing damage so it was really important that i think the bottles were passed and they were passed in a more balanced way giving both parties um sort of rights in terms of any future issues that may arise Yep, and excellent that you were able to resolve that in the meeting by proposing an amendment to the motion Mm. and that you had people there who were able to assist with that. The race to the bottom when it comes to the pricing on bylaws is very concerning to me and I suppose it happens because uh, there's high demand for bylaws from strata managers, from buildings, from lot owners. There still are relatively few strata lawyers who know what they're doing in this space and often these documents need to be turned over quickly because the owner's requesting them quickly, the strata manager said, I need it this afternoon for an agenda that's going out. There is a danger there that templates are being picked up, precedents are being used Mm. that are not properly considered, that are not properly filled out and there isn't regard to the specific work that's being done by the lot owner. I think where a client has come to you, a lawyer, directly for one-on-one advice, unique, specific to their situation, then you need to be providing that advice and charging for it. And Mm, if that means that your bylaw is $2,000 rather than $500, well, so be it. Exactly, Amanda. It's funny because you should mention that about people wanting to like sort of reuse other people's bylaws. We had a case in a building where someone had undertaken some work and we said, you know, this, they shouldn't have done that. It was a bathroom renovation as well. And there was another bottle that had already been passed by another owner that had done similar work, although they had done extra work. So they had added the additional works and the bathroom renovation into the one bylaw. And stupidly, this person just went and got that bylaw and just, I think they just changed the lot number and put it through again and we said no like you know I think it was kitchen or camera what the other renovations were like there's one thing to you know try and save money but to try and replicate a bottle not even you know look at whether or not the actual work is reflective of the work that you want to do mm. I mean, it's a bit of a worry but the race to the bottom I think sometimes is an issue when it comes to trying to get fee proposals where some lawyers are saying that they'll match the lowest price and you know and I've mm. had one is a disparity like nearly of two thousand dollars between one quote and another quote and they're saying and the higher one saying oh I'm going to match the cheapest and I'm thinking well <laughs> really you know, yeah and I think to myself well why don't you you know it's either worth the amount that you quoted yes. or 
you know, I just don't like sort of, I think when it comes to professional services or sort of any service of men, I think that when you start playing this sort of, you know, race to the bottom game, I just, you know, think it just ruins the professionalism. I think for, for all parties, for strata managers, for, for lawyers in this working in this field, it's like, Mm. It makes the client think that you've just picked a number out of the air and put Mm. it on a piece of paper because that's what you felt like that day. If you're saying that you will match any other quote, as a client, I'd be thinking, well, the fees are either this much or they're not. And if they are this much, then I trust that you've thought about it and you know how long it's going to take and what skill and expertise it requires and you stand by that price. That's part of being a professional. Yeah, or alternatively, manner you quote the highest and think you might be able to get away with it, and then if you don't, then you'll you'll charge what it really should have cost. Perhaps don't I don't do know. That. We don't do that. Oh, My yeah, of course not. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Well, there is definitely a role for templates. Many of you listening to this podcast will know that I sell templates on my website and they are there for a particular purpose at a particular time and and come with all required disclosures about the fact that they are not legal advice. They are not specific to a person's situation and they are therefore priced accordingly. You would pay about eight times more to get one-on-one bespoke drafting from me as a lawyer than you would to get a template off my website. So that really demonstrates the role that templates have to play. And I don't think that owners who are paying for that one-on-one legal advice should be getting ill-considered templates. Exactly. Okay, I'm going to move over to my win for this week. I would like to share that I have been working with a very creative lot owner. Uh, I was going to say developer, but actually I'm not sure that he has a lot of development experience. I think he's just really clever. Uh, He owns a couple of lots in a reasonably small development in Sydney's eastern suburbs, and he is looking to purchase the rooftop space and build two more lots on the rooftop. It will have a beautiful... Uh, beach view once he has completed his work. And I have been talking to him about the process of purchasing that area of common property from the owners corporation and making sure that his subdivision plan is properly drawn up and approved by the owners corporation so that he can create those two new lots. Anybody who has been involved in or looked into the process of using valuable areas of the common property to uh, add value to their own lots will be across the different options that are available. You can either purchase the common property as my client is, or you can have a common property rights bylaw drawn up. And we have talked on the podcast previously about the differences between those two processes. I'll, I'll put a link to the relevant episode in the show notes. So Amanda, can I ask you, does this owner actually own a lot within that scheme? Yes, he does. He owns a couple of lots in that scheme. And that is a really good question, Rena, because what I've had to talk through with him is the fact that when he purchases this space, he is going to be paying money to the owners corporation, which the owners corporation may then distribute, if it likes, to each of the lot owners in accordance with their unit entitlements. Now, of course, he is a lot owner. So Mm. he is actually going to receive part of the purchase price. It will be coming back to him. Yes. Yeah. That's an interesting concept. (laughs) Yes. And it's not something I can say I have come across before, at least not to this extent where he actually owns a couple of lots and it's a small scheme. So when he's doing his figures and he's discussing with owners just as a preliminary discussion, what the purchase price is and how much they will be looking to get, he's having to make very clear that as an owner himself, he is also going to get some money back. 
And he's in the process at the moment of working out whether does that mean that I actually need to up the purchase price so that these owners Yeah, the net effect is that they get yeah. Exactly. But think about that from his perspective, if he's upping the purchase price, he's having to pay stamp duty on this contract price. So he's going to have to factor in a little bit of extra tax there as well. So uh, a couple of layers to think about in that one, but an exciting project. But Amanda, why are they actually redistributing? Like why don't they just keep the money in the, in the capital fund? Like why are they I mean I suppose if they weren't redistributing Distributing the funds, and he wouldn't have to add yes. more. It'd just be sitting in the capital fund, and in his portion of any future levies would, for the capital fund would just come out of that pot. Yeah, correct. They could keep the money in the account, but I can tell you now, it's set to be in excess of a million dollars. So, oh, okay. and to get this kind of a sale across the line, we need a special resolution, of course. So we're looking to get support from as many owners as we can. And the best way to get that support is to say, hey, this is your cut of the action that you'll be getting at the end of the day. Mm. So I think it's unlikely that the owner's corporation, it doesn't need to, it's a small building, it doesn't have that level of expenditure, it doesn't have a huge project coming up or a fire order yeah. or anything like that. The owners do want to be paid out that money from mm. the fund. Yeah. So I wonder um, what the tax implications are for the owners' corporation receiving such a big amount of money because, um, yeah, I, I mean, I suppose in a sense I've never really, you know, we obviously have income that we get, Amanda, from, say, common property uh, rental for, of apartments that are, you know, it's unusual there are some buildings that have apartments that are common property which they can rent out and obviously the tower income from leases of communications mm. towers on roofs. But having that income come back in where it's not actually sitting in the, in the capital fund but it's actually being received by individual owners, I wonder I wonder what the tax treatment with that. I'm sure that's obviously an issue that has to be thought about by the owners corporation in terms of tax advice too. Yep, absolutely. And a good reminder to owners corporations who are engaging in those processes or involved in those kinds of contracts to make sure that they are getting that advice and that their strata manager is recommending that they get that advice. Yep, yeah. definitely. Okay, so that's another big week. Anything to add, Rena? No, all good, Amanda. Another big week and just looking forward to the weekend. <laughs> yes. Enjoy and I will catch you here next time. Bye. Thank you for listening to Your Strata Property, the podcast which consistently delivers to property owners reliable and accurate information about their strata property. You can access all the information below this episode via the show notes at www.yourstrataproperty.com.au. You can also ask questions in the comments section, which Amanda will answer in her upcoming episodes. How can Amanda help you today? today?